So I don't really follow the royal family. It's not something that I do. But I am a, a student of history. And less than two weeks ago, the queen died. And that's the first time in nearly 70 years England has a king. In the history of English royalty, he was the uh, longest monarch in waiting. So consequently, he is the oldest king ever crowned. He's number 62 in a line that goes back 1,200 years. Now, even if you don't know anything about the uh, royal line of England, you have perhaps heard of one of uh, their most well-known kings, which is interesting given his reign was very short and he died very young, King Henry V. One of the most remarkable battles in all of history was fought at a place in France called Agincourt. And the night before that battle, it was quiet. The only sound that you could hear were the men preparing for war. And the only sight that you saw were the burning watchfires. The French outnumbered the English five to one. And when you look at heavy cavalry, it was far worse than it even sounded uh, numerically. The French officers were already dividing up the spoils. How to do that? What new titles to take were their lands to be given? The English soldiers, to a man, believed that this was their last night on this earth. But they waited patiently for their fate, resigned to their death. Now that was the backdrop that Shakespeare used to write about what happened next. So it was on that morning of October 25th of 1415, St. Crispin's Day, that a rain began before the battle, actually that night. And as a part of that, as they were preparing to go out and meet the French in open warfare, Henry's cousin, Westmoreland, said this, Oh, that we now had here but one ten thousand of those men in England who do no work today. And Henry responded in part, one of the most brilliant things I think Shakespeare has ever written. But in part he said this, And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For today he that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. It is no secret that warfare or in many ways any trial by fire forms a special bond between those who serve together. And Paul, knowing that his time was at hand, proud to have Timothy as his son in faith, now moves that relationship to that of an equal. He invites him not as a son, but as a warrior to fight alongside of him. Second Timothy 2, 3 and 4. 
as we continue in our study, reads this. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. This is very poignant from my perspective because Paul is now inviting Timothy, not as a son, although a son, but yet come share with me, not simply as a, fa- a father and a son in Christ, but as warriors, as brothers in arms. We happy few under the command of Jesus Christ. By the way, uh, I, I just thought some of you may not realize the end of that uh, battle where the English won decisively because of the mud and the rain and the heavy armor and their longbows. I should have mentioned that. So it was quite the, uh, the turnaround. So the Roman soldier that Paul has in his mind here uh, served more like the service that we had likely during the, the Civil War and uh, before to include the Revolutionary uh, War uh, in, in, in our past. So today, you know, people register for the draft. And, but otherwise, it's an all-volunteer military. You volunteer, you sign up, you join, you come in. And when you do that, the military has some amazing benefits. They house you, they clothe you, they feed you, they train you, they equip you. In other words, because you're doing this for the country, they do that for you. That is not the way it was. I mean, it is true that Rome had a very small standing army that the state kind of paid for. But the way war was conducted then, as in the Revolutionary War here, where wealthy men would gather together from their village or their county or their environs, others, and they would pay for them. In other words, when you went to war, you were fighting for actually somebody. And that somebody, your commander, was going to allow you a share in the spoils. And that's how you were paid. All the way back in the the Roman time, uh, of course, they received a salary, which I love that word. It's from the Latin salarium, not solarium, but sa. And uh, it's pertaining to salt. Salt is where we get our, the Latin salt is where we get our word salary because you were paid in salt. Salt was, in fact, currency Uh, And uh, beyond that, they shared, of course, in the plunder. I mean, they had to have salt, but they also wanted a little bit of gold and silver, too. Uh, And you got to keep a portion of what your unit took. So while today we may like and appreciate certain commanders that we serve under in the military, in the ancient times, the reason the soldier was to please the one who enlisted them was because they were the ones who freed you from civilian pursuits so that you could engage in warfare. Uh, Think about this. In an agrarian society, you have 
the people in your home, perhaps women and children, and they come and they want you to go to war. Are you not going to plant your crops? Are you not going to take care of business at home? You had to be uh, re not reimbursed, but compensated in some way to allow that to happen and not destroy the fabric of your society. And so that's what they would do. And a good soldier, therefore, could not be distracted by civilian entanglements. One might say that on the battlefield, a distracted soldier may well be a dead soldier. Paul's point is, that, is, is this that the believer faces the same thing. I mentioned this several times. I'll continue to mention this. And that is that you need to have an awareness that you are at war. It's not the war is out there. The war is here. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are at war in this world and against this world's leader, Satan, and we need to understand that in order to be successful in this battle, it takes a few, a few things. I mean, the deadly danger of evangelical Christianity for the past, I don't know, 50 or more years is that you become a believer in order to experience the benefits and the goodness that God gives you through Christ experiencing that in a temporal, physical, financial way. And while there is truth to that, there is also truth that you will suffer. If you come to Christ thinking he's going to take away your suffering, that's a misunderstanding of what Christ does in our heart and in our life. Scripture is clear, very clear. That believers are called not to merely enjoy life and to have everything around us pleasant and comfortable, but to suffer. And suffering is, oh by the way, not some thing that shouldn't be happening at all. Now yes, as it relates to the fall, one could make that argument. But it, as it relates to the Christian, the normal Christian life, we will suffer. And that's a part of the process. The only objective that the Christian soldiers should have is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the motive, though, is one of love. It's not to repay. I mean, think about that. If, if you reflect on some of these uh, things for a few moments, you'll realize how ridiculous they are. You are going to repay the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ? I, no, that can't be it. Even we could go through a number of things like duty and, and, and things like that, but the bottom line is it comes down to love. Actually, I could talk about that as it relates to warfare as well, but I won't take the time. The motive to serve Jesus Christ is to follow the Lord of heaven and earth and to be available to him in whatever capacity that he wants. John wrote in Revelation 1.5, Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Our return on that is love. Now, not only are we to be free 
from entanglements. Not only are we to be free to serve, but Paul goes on. We're to be dedicated to the task like a professional athlete. An athlete, he says, is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Yes, they had rules. And what we may not understand is that those rules were not only in effect during the competition itself, but also during the training. If you trained wrong, you would be put aside. You would be left out. Research indicates, and goodness, if you ever want to be an Olympian, you need to hear this. Uh, they spends about 8 to 10 hours a day in training. It, it reminds me of... Howard Hendricks heard Itzhak Perlman playing the violin and, and he wanted to play the violin with all his heart and he, he asked him, he said, what does it take to play the violin like that? And he says, about eight hours a day the rest of your life. And Hendricks said, well, I wanted to play the violin but not that much. So there's a sacrifice these athletes had to uh, swear to Zeus that they would enter this training period for at least 10 months, that they would not violate the rules, which were relatively strict, and that failure to train would result in disqualification. Failure to abide by the rules would dis result in either disqualification or fines or even being uh, whipped. I, I hope that Many of you have seen the movie. It's, it's older now, but it's Chariots of Fire. It's a story of Eric Liddell, an athlete who really wanted to win, and he felt the pleasure of God when he did uh, run. Uh, but at the same time, he was a man of a deep faith, and his understanding was that he could not run on a Sunday to his own harm he would respect God more than he would his desire to win. And the film is a, it's a moving representation of how that all worked out. And it describes for us not necessarily the belief that Eric Liddell had, but his dedication to the path that he was on, to both as an athlete and as a, a believer. Today we're called really to say no to many uh, things. The world pulls at us from every side, every angle, every moment of the day. Your phones will ding you while you're in here. And it will call to you and it will say, look at me, listen to me. And the information that it gives may not be the kind of information that is the something that you want or need, but it's a constant struggle but a christian athlete must say no I, you know there are certain things i've got to do and i can't be distracted i have to be dedicated i can't be disrupted i can't stop i have to continue and that's the kind of discipline that's necessary and then paul uses a final metaphor and that of the the diligence of a farmer because it's the hard-working farmer, he says, in uh, verse 6, who ought to have the first share of the crops. The emphasis there is on hard-working. Now, this is where a lot of believers get stumbled on, on this stuff. 
hardworking. Hardworking for what? The hardworking is not because you need to work for your salvation. It's because you have salvation. You're working, in essence, so that what Paul says later is for all those who are to come to Christ to uh, do so. Being a Christian is not just floating through life. It's God working with you. When you get into a situation, God is already there. And your question should be, what is he doing and how might I join in that, in that process? If we, going back to what I said earlier about this, I think, curse of evangelicalism, I'm not saying that that's a, a part here, but this notion that we're we're to be blessed and that any little suffering is is God. Why are you cursing me when it's not a curse at all? It's His way of dealing with you. Because when the heat comes in those belief systems, the first thing to do is I want out. I'm done. I'm done with this. I quit. And Paul is saying no. What you need to do. What we need to do is we need to reprogram our thinking processes so that we understand that we are working for Jesus Christ and for His kingdom, not for ours. And it takes perhaps, you know, the watering of, you know, listening to podcasts or the sowing the seed of, of, of taking in the Word or of sharing your faith. It takes some diligent labor. It doesn't come automatically because you happen to be a Christian. Like a farmer, you might get up early and work hard and have an expectation of a harvest, but you'll understand from Paul's other writings that that harvest comes from the Lord, not from you. You do a certain kind of work. He does other. So these are three very expressive metaphors which Paul uses uh, to say essentially one thing. In, in a world that is darkened, Christians must live as children of light by committing themselves without reserve to the Lord. And, and, and his point is that we're to be singularly focused, we're to be deeply dedicated, diligently patient, and what he's saying is surrender your options. This is something that you give to the Lord. Resolutely follow the Lord. I love that word, resolute. And uh, admit no alternatives. Follow him, whatever he asks you to do. What are we to do with these word pictures? Well, the same thing that he told Paul to in verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Uh, we're to ponder them. So when I, something may have came into your mind, it was the first thing that came into my mind when I was growing up, uh, if you're a certain age. When I was growing up, I used to watch a TV show called Bonanza. Uh, now, Bonanza took place on a ranch called the Ponderosa. Now, as a kid, I had no idea what a Bonanza was, uh, nor a Ponderosa. I didn't know what either one. The first one comes to us from the Latin through Spanish, and it means a, a rich load. So that's what bonanza means. But before that, uh, earlier in uh, that word's history, it meant uh, fair weather at sea. 
which is a fascinating uh, concept there. The latter means to ponder, to consider, to reflect. And it comes from the, uh, the same word, interestingly enough, uh, to weigh. Like, like uh, in Hebrew, kavod. It, 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 so you have this notion there where we get an, another English word from it, which is fascinating, which is pendant. So a pendant, uh, many uh, of you have are wearing one now, whether it's a cross or something else, but that's been weighed. It has value uh, to it. And so when we weigh these things, when we ponder them, the Lord will give us understanding. So when we lack understanding about something, Paul is giving us a process right here. He's saying, reflect on it. Oftentimes, we, we, we don't. We, we don't reflect. We run to an encyclopedia. We run to a dictionary. We run to a, a sermon. We run to someone else's opinion. When the first place... I'm not saying those things are wrong at all. I do that every week. But... The first place we should go, the first place we should stop is the Word of God and asking the Spirit of God to enlighten us, to show us what does this mean. And then once we have reflected on it, once we have something, then you can go to, uh, go to, uh, to Moody or, or go to some other person that you respect and say, oh, but we had the same thought. Well, the Spirit uh, works uh, that way. This word understanding is, a, is an interesting word. I, I, I love this word. It has to do with putting together puzzles. So today, if you go get a puzzle, and I'm not a big puzzle guy. Occasionally, they'll capture me. But some of you really may like puzzles. And if you're really into it, you may put the puzzle together without the picture. Yeah, no. I'm, I'm not there. So, what happens is, there, as you, you, you just have the tiny shapes of the pieces before you. Now, if you understand that that's what knowledge is like, frankly, that's what our life is like, all we have are these tiny pieces that we're continually trying to put together and construct in something. And this word, understanding, has this notion of all these pieces coming together. It's kind of the, uh, an aha moment where you go, oh, I get it. I understand now. They come together. The picture comes into focus and you see it. And Paul knows all these um, examples are in the human realm. So he, he goes on in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. So this is a, it's an interesting part about sanctification because this is what he's talking about. He's talking about living the Christian life. He is not talking about salvation. Otherwise you get messed up in a few uh, verses uh, forward. You can get. While living the holy life and while they're related, uh, one is independent of works. Uh, you were saved uh, not by works that you have done. But sanctification is different. Sanctification does require you to walk in a certain way, to be, to be focused, to not engaged in civilian pursuits, these entanglements. That's a metaphor, of course. To be dedicated, to be patient. 
And Paul is saying, you do all these things, but listen, you have to rely on Jesus Christ. You've got to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. He's saying in other ways that Christ was called to suffer. And so when we walk in his footsteps and we suffer, it's to be expected. Christ experienced the death of all deaths. I mean, and ultimately the death of death. But yet he has risen. He deserved the throne of David then. He will receive it. But if anyone had the right to cry out in justice, it was, in fact, our Lord. But the word of God is not bound, we read. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So, uh, Paul makes this fascinating... He, he puts himself in chains... But he shows that the word of, of God is not bound. Even though I am bound, the word of God is, is not bound. He couldn't get outside the boundaries of that dark cell. And the world was ready to burst in flames. But he was not frustrated because the word of God was turned loose on society. It was being passed from person to person and Paul could, even though in the situation where he was at, understand that this was still going on. And one of the things that I uh, love about this chapel, and I trust that you do as well, is because the word of truth is proclaimed. In whatever the context, it is proclaimed as fully and as completely as it can be. And I believe that most of you are here because you believe that the word of God is true. And his word does tell us of blessing, of change, of deliverance, of freedom and liberty. But it also tells us that we will suffer. And then Paul writes this in verse 11. This saying is trustworthy. Now he had just said something profound. And he was concerned that Timothy may have missed it. He was, he, and by extension, we may miss it as well. So Paul offered Timothy what may have been an early hymn, uh, and one that's just filled with paradox. Uh, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This word uh, paradox comes from two words that means contrary to judgment or contrary to opinion. So it's this notion that when you hear something at first, you go, uh, that doesn't make sense. It sounds absurd. But upon further reflection, you go, okay, it makes sense. So I'm going to uh, clue you in. In addition, to, I wanted to do Tolkien today, but oh well. Gilbert and Sullivan. Anybody, anybody, a few of you maybe, a couple of hands go up. He has this wonderful, or they have this uh, wonderful uh, musical that they uh, wrote, Pirates of Penzance. And one of the songs speaks directly to the nature of paradox. In fact, their entire work, that particular work, 
rests upon this notion completely. Now, I can't give you the whole background, so, uh, but I, I would say that it's, it's, uh, it's just a wonderful, clever, clever humor. I'll read you the, the song, I Will Spare You by Not uh, Singing It. For some ridiculous reason to which, however, I've no desire to be disloyal, some person in authority, I don't know who, very likely the astronomer royal, has decided that although for such a beastly month as February, 28 days as a rule are plenty, one year in every four his days shall be reckoned as nine and twenty. Through some singular coincidence, I shouldn't be surprised if it were owing to the agency of an ill-natured fairy, you are the victim of this clumsy arrangement having been born in leap year on the 29th of February. So, by a simple arithmetical process, you'll easily discover that although you've lived 21 years, yet if we go by birthdays, you're only five and a little bit over. And then, dear me, let's see. Yes, yes, with yours, my figures do agree. How quaint the ways of paradox at common sense she gaily mocks. Though counting in the usual way, years 21, I've been alive, yet reckoning by my natal day, yet reckoning by my natal day, I am a little boy of five. So we have these paradoxes, which I'll go through quickly here. First, the paradox of salvation. Paul is saying, I may be put to death. Timothy, you may be put to death. But one way or another, unless the Lord returns, we learn in all places, in our own experience, that we're all going to die, save the Lord's return. And if we die with him, in him we will live with him. That includes, but does not require, martyrdom. Second, the paradox of endurance. If we endure, we will reign with him. Now, just uh, uh, just a moment ago, I spoke about uh, enduring everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal uh, glory. Now, the fourth paradox tells us as believers that we will endure. So what's in view here? I believe that what's happening here is that the injustice in this life is being juxtaposed to the uh, reigning in the next in the same way that those who are reigning in this life, obviously, uh, aside from Christ, will endure torment in the next. Paul tells of the the paradox that death leads to life. Weeping uh, comes before uh, joy. The cross is carried before the crown is worn. And the suffering for Christ leads us to reign with him in uh, glory. Now, another part of the flip side of this is the third uh, paradox, and that's the, the paradox of denial. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, this has caused fear in many believers because they don't understand that he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about either sanctification or two, these people never trusted Christ in the first place. Why do I know that? All you have to do is just take a stroll back to the Gospels and look at the life of Peter. So Peter ended up denying Christ 
three times. Christ did not deny Peter. In no way he enfolded him in his arms. So he's talking about something else. He's talking, even if he's talking about a thoroughgoing apostasy from which there's no recovery, I theologically don't believe that that can happen. I believe that it can apparently happen, but I don't believe that it actually can. And even were that so, you have the fourth and final paradox, which is an amazing comfort and should relieve any of you of any question had you a question to begin with. And that's the paradox of faithlessness. If we are faithless, listen to these words. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. What an amazing promise we have in Jesus Christ. We see all through scripture how he restored Israel because of the commitment that he had made. Do you think that his commitment to us is less than that? I don't think so. What we have given him, he will keep. The Apostle Paul was able to say, For I know whom I believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We're coming into times that will try our souls. And we have to take these things very seriously. It will test the reality of our faith. And it's only through the dedication as a soldier, the discipline as an athlete, the diligence of a farmer that we're going to see the results that God will give. This is the life that, to which we have been called. Father, we, we are thankful that that we have life in you through Jesus Christ. We would otherwise be so utterly and completely uh, lost. And we know that even these, uh, these three metaphors that are used, we know that it's only the spirit strength in our heart that will allow us to do this. So we pray for that. Uh, that we may live lives worthy of your calling. Through Christ our Lord, amen.